Uh, So I will go ahead and ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 22. We're coming to the very end stretch of this book, which I know many of you are wanting it to go many, many more weeks. Uh, We do have two more weeks. We will finish chapter 22 next week. And then what what we're going to do is overcap, a review of the entire book. There are seven times the word blessed appears in the word revelation. Remember, Numbers are highly symbolic in this book, and so there are seven blessings. And so we're just going to look at what the blessings are in this, in this book uh, that we've studied and, and what those mean for us today. So I encourage you uh, to, to, to continue on with us. Last week we walked through chapter 21. Ben uh, led us through that. Today we're only in the first five verses of 22. And so this is kind of the climactic uh, end of this vision that we began in chapter 21. Uh, it's given to us so that we would, we would experience kind of a, a sensory overload as we're looking in chapter 22 and we see this city filled with gold and diamonds and pearl gates and as we come in today and we're going to look at this description we're to be in awe and wonder as we look at the new heavens and new earth what we're going to see is that this new creation is where God's blessings are unceasingly poured out there's no pain there's no suffering there's no sin there's no evil and and this vision is meant it it functions as a mean to strengthen us in our faith so that as we go through present trials and temptations that we would be able to stand firm and trust in God and live as he has called us to it's it's meant to help us persevere in this world and we'll look at that as we go but I'm going to go ahead and ask that you would stand as we read the text today we stand here at Timberline uh, because because this is God's word coming with his full inspiration and authority is it it is inerrant in every way and we do it for the training of righteousness that it does for us chapter 22 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we dig now into this passage, God, may your spirit just illuminate its meaning. God, may we see the beauty of this text. May you fill us with awe and wonder, and may you increase a longing in our heart for this day where we will be with you in this new creation. God, we thank you for your son Jesus who has saved us, who has adopted us into your family, so that we would spend eternity with you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Take this off. 
Um, so a couple things. As we begin this morning, I, I want us to see a connection between this text and what happens in Genesis, in, in the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden was a microcosm of the kingdom of God. And, and here's a quick definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So, so we see that in, in Eden, this microcosm of it. Now, Eden was where man originally dwelt before rebelling against God. Eden was a garden temple. It was a garden, and it was a temple. It was a place in which God came and made His presence known. Um, it was a holy place on earth where God would meet with man. Eden had a river flowing from it. The tree of life was in Eden. The blessing of God's rule was in Eden. And humanity was given the right to rule and expand Eden so that it would fill the entire earth. That's If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, those are the things that we would see. Now, Revelation, what we have here in chapter 22, is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. And it's Eden, but blown up a thousand times bigger. And what we're going to see is what we have in in Revelation is better than Eden. Here again, we have the kingdom of God, and we have it, though, in all of its glory. Again, we have a, a garden temple. Last week, Ben preached in chapter 21, where we see that all of creation is this holy of holies. It's this place that we've seen throughout the Old Testament where God would dwell, and now we see that we, that all of creation, will dwell in this holy place, the new creation with God. So chapter 21 focuses on the temple part. Chapter 22 in our section focuses on the garden part. And what we see in our text today, there's a river flowing. There's, a, there's the tree of life. The blessings of God's rule is everywhere. Humanity rules with God just as Adam was, was intended to. Um, and this garden temple is what characterizes and fills all of creation. So there's great similarity between the beginning uh, of the book, Genesis, and the end where we are at now in Revelation. But this new creation is not going back to Eden. It's not God just hitting the rewind button, but it's, it's much better than whatever Eden was. Let me just give you a couple ways that it's much better. For one, in Revelation, we're told twice in this text that God's throne is located in the new creation. So in Genesis, we see that God would come and meet with man as if he was there and then sometimes not there. Here, God dwells. His throne is made known in the center of this creation. It's not a place where God visits, but it's a place where he habitates. Everything in this new creation experiences the fullness of God's glory, His rule, His presence, and His blessing at all times. Secondly, this, uh, we need to remember original creation was not perfect. It was good, it was very good, but it was not perfect perfect we know it's not perfect now that might be new to you i thought it was god said it was good we know it wasn't perfect because why man sinned perfect would know would be no sin would be no fallen angel satan coming in and deceiving man 
So what we see today, though, in the new creation is that uh, this new creation will be unable to be corrupted for it will forever share and reflect the glory of God. And so as we make our way, what we're going to do is kind of divide it into two sections. What it kind of says about creation and then what it says about humanity specific. And as we dig in here, um, it's good to wonder. Is, is what we're reading a literal description of what it's actually going to look like? Or is it more symbolic? And you could kind of be on, on both places, um, but I think what we're to understand here is that this text is helping us, helping us see and understand truths of the new creation. So whether there's actually a throne with a river coming out of the throne, or these are pictures that are helping us understand what this new creation is like, we're going to be able to have an understanding of where God is bringing us to. Uh, so we'll start with creation, and uh, a few points underneath that. Number one, all of creation will be sustained by the glorious rule of God. So we begin verses 1 and 2, and we see that there's a river of life, a tree of life, and there's God's throne, and they're all located in this new creation. Now, a couple of things. First, God's throne. His presence will be with all of humanity and creation for all of eternity. And notice what the throne, how the throne is, is described. It's God's throne, the Father, and it's the, the Lamb's throne. Well, who's the Lamb? Jesus. Now, is that interesting? That Jesus is referred to as the Lamb? What does that tell us about new creation? I think it tells us we will never, ever forget the cross. We will never forget that it is only by God's grace through Jesus Christ that we will be a part of this new creation dwelling with God forever. I think we're meant to forever, for all of eternity, remember the work of Christ. So if you've wondered, will we remember things in the new heavens and new earth? Some people ask that. Will we have any recollection? Yeah, I totally and absolutely think we will. For one, we will remember the cross, to which I was talking to someone, and they said, yeah, but God, God wipes away all of our tears. Like, we're not going to remember the bad things, to which I responded, what worse thing is there than the Son of God being crucified and killed on this world? If we remember that, we will remember everything else. But there will be no tears, for God, we've read in chapter 21, will wipe them away, because at that point, we will see things as God does. We will know the point of pains and trials and sufferings and tribulations. So no, I believe we will remember everything that we can of this life, but mostly, we will remember the cross of Jesus Christ and how God has saved us by His grace. Um, so secondly, so first we see the throne here. So God's presence and His rule is eternally made known. Secondly, we have this river of life and the tree of life, which I think is meant to show us how all of creation is sustained by the very rule of God. Notice, the river of life comes out of the throne. It flows through the middle of the city, which is probably meant to show its significance. It's centered right down the middle. Now, is there really a river? Maybe. Or, potentially, is this a reference to the Spirit? Now, just 
We have the Father. We have the Son. Um, in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, Jesus says that all who believe in me, a river of life will spring up from them. And he explains that is the work of the Spirit. Potentially, this is, a, this is showing that from the throne, God's Spirit goes forth, sustaining all creation. Now, whether it's a river or not, what we understand is that God is sustaining all of creation. And notice in verse 2, the river of, river of life waters, it feeds the tree of life, which is on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit at all times of the year. The tree is never barren. The river of life feeds the tree of life. Now, how is a tree on both sides of the river? That's interesting, right? How many trees are there? Is it one tree? Is it many trees? Um, I would argue that there's a forest that's here taking place. In Genesis, there's one tree. But in the new creation, I think we're to see that there's many, many trees. Remember, as we go through the Bible, everything goes from lesser to greater. We're going from a, a small garden in a small area of the world where God's presence is made known to the end of the book where God's presence is made known in all of creation. So we go from lesser to greater. But most helpful is Ezekiel here. We saw that Ezekiel's been used in chapter 19, in chapter 20, chapter 21, and, and in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel a vision, a glimpse of this new creation. So this is what he says in chapter 47, verse 12. And you should just go read all of 47 later. It's, it's, it's fun. It says, On the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit Every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the very dwelling place of God, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So here we have, Ezekiel says, I see a whole bunch of trees. And the water comes from the sanctuary. So again, it's, it's very visual. Waters don't normally flow out of a building, in a, finding their origin there. But he's showing that all of life is coming out of the very house of God, watering these trees of life. And notice at the end of verse 2, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Now that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, really, the only times nations are mentioned in Revelation is when we're looking at what Jesus has done and that the nations are now coming to gather around the throne of God. And so, what I think is happening here is that we're seeing that these leaves that bring healing are meant to kind of show us the, the consummation of all of God's promises that the bride, the people of God, will be fully glorified. Because we know there's not going to be a constant need for healing, right? Because now we come into new creation. There's no sin. In chapter 21, all, all tears have been wiped away. So what, what healing do we need other than now that we come out of the tribulation, out of, the re, out of revelation, into this new creation where we will be fully glorified with God? And we'll look at what glorification is in a little bit. But what I think we're seeing 
is that this tree of life that comes from the river of life, that comes from the throne of God, is all for the sustaining of creation, the healing of the nations, as we live forever with God. Now think about it. In this place, never will you again pray, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Do you realize that? Because his will will be done all the time. Isn't that neat? Never will you say, as your will is done in heaven, may it be done here. His will will be perfectly fulfilled in all creation at all times. Can you picture this reality? I don't know if we can. You have to try as we go through. Just think through. Can we picture this? Next point. All of creation will reflect God's glory. Look at verse 3. Read, nothing will be accursed. Now, when we go back to Genesis, we see that Satan, in the form of a snake, deceives Adam and Eve, and they rebel against God. In chapter 3, God then comes, and he brings curses. He curses the snake. He brings curses upon man and woman, and he brings curses upon the ground. Ultimately, we see that man and woman are removed from the garden, so we no longer are in this microcosm of God's kingdom where we're experiencing God's blessing and his rule, but we're removed from the garden, and we see also creation itself becomes cursed. In Genesis three seventeen, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Farmers know this very well. My uncle is a farmer, and sometimes it doesn't rain when you need it to rain, and, and, the, and the crop doesn't come forth. Sometimes it rains when you don't want it to rain, and it ruins the crop. Creation, at times, is in, is in strife, Against humanity. In Romans 8, we are told creation was subjected to futility. When man sinned, all creation, man and and the very earth that we are in, has been corrupted because of sin. Everything that was deemed good has now been cursed. It's because creation has been cursed that there's natural disasters, there's tsunamis, that there's earthquakes, famine, animal attacks, diseases, and, and all the other things that we read. But what we see is that Jesus came to the cross to die so that we who believe in him would be forgiven, would be adopted. So he came to redeem humanity, but he also came to redeem creation, a place for us to be, a place for us to experience his rule, a place for us to experience his blessing. So he died so he'd make a new heavens and a new earth. And, and throughout the Old Testament, we're given these glimpses. Like in Joel chapter 3, it says, In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Have you ever seen that happen? Wouldn't that be cool? We'll get our goblets there, like just sweet wine coming from the mountains. The hills shall flow with milk. That's weird. All the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the very valley of Shittim. So everything is prosperous. Everything is beautiful. Remember, this is being spoken to an agricultural people. To know there's water, to know the, um, the abundance of the land is going to bring forth food. This is, this is good news. Amos chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, uh, and the treader of grapes, uh, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it. In Isaiah 32, we read that the wilderness will become fruitful. So the wilderness will become a forest. 
Wilderness in the Bible was a place of testing, a place of trials where Israel went. There will be no wilderness. There will be a forest. It will produce fields of fruit. And we're told that there will be justice and righteousness and peace and quiet and, and that forever we will trust our God. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there is going to be a new creation. Now, I'm all about picking up trash, recycling. I think we are to be stewards of what God has given us. But I think that we can sometimes swing in one way or another. Sometimes we swing and say, well, this place is going to burn up. We don't need to do anything with it, right? Or we kind of swing to the other way. It's like, we will save creation. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, what we see is that one day, this world will be made new. Second Peter 3, 7. It says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So I don't think there's going to be a totally new earth, like this one's literally going to be thrown away and there'll be a new one. I think uh, that there will be a, a, a connection between the two, but it's going to be purified. It's going to be made new. Just as when a mother gives birth to a child, there's a connection between the mother and the, and the child. Um, it's, a, it's a giving of life. I think we're going to see that this birth is going to give forth to new life, and it will be purified, purified, and it will be holy. God is coming to make all things new. There will be nothing cursed or sinful in it. Now, this is why we know that sin will never again corrupt humanity or creation. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But the blazing glory of God's throne forever shields this creation from any form of corruption. This means there will be no disease. There will be no disasters. There will not be AIDS. There will be not cancer. There will be no pain. There will be no Parkinson's. There will be no sin. There will be no Satan. There will be no rebellion, no corruption. All of creation will be perfectly holy. Isn't that amazing? Now, can you picture that? Everything perfect? Like, see, I don't think that we're actually supposed to be able to picture this. I think we're just supposed to go into sensory overload where we're going, this is amazing. Awe and wonder. But it's going to be so much greater than we can even fathom. Next point. All of creation will be illuminated by God's glory. So we have that all of creation reflects God's glory. It's not just reflecting, but it's illuminated. God's glory is filling all of creation. Skip down to verse 5. We read, there will be no night. There will be no lamps. You won't have to worry about LED, halogen, you know, or any other types of lights. Bob, no more replacing, you know, these wonderful lights that he does all the time. He loves when lights go out. Um. There will be no moon. Well, and that's what we read in, in chapter 21, verse 23. There's no need for a moon. Now, why? Because we're told God will illuminate all creation. Now, how does this take place? In verse 23 of chapter 21, it says that God's glory lights up creation. His glory illuminates creation. Now, now we have a picture of this in Isaiah where he says, The sun shall be no more. 
your light by day, nor by brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Can you picture that? No sun, no moon, no stars, because we have all the light that we need. Now today, there's people who look at sunsets and sunrises in Grand Canyons, or the Grand Canyon, the vastness of the universe, and look at the stars, and they will then look at all those things, and they will deny the very existence of God. They'll say, look, I don't believe this actually points to God at all. But in this new creation, it will be God's glory that illuminates everything. His glory will unable to be missed or denied. Creation will be fully uncorrupted. It will reflect the very glory of God. There will be no shadows, no darkness. I think that's to kind of point out that often evil and sin takes place in the darkness, right? There'll be no place of darkness. Now, if you take a glass and you put it under a faucet and you turn it on, you you could fill that glass with water. So every part of that glass is, is bubbling over with water and it spills over into the sink and just keeps filling and filling. Um... I think that's kind of like what this is. It's God's glory is literally filling all of creation so that every aspect, every part of creation will echo the very glory of God. There will be no place where God's glory does not just beam forth in radiance. Can you imagine a world illuminated without a sun, a moon, a stars, or light bulbs fully by the radiance of God's glory. Now again, uh, I think these, these chapters are meant to put us in this sensory overload, just this awe and wonder. Is the point that there really won't be a sun? Maybe. Maybe. Is it to show that the sun, the moon, and the stars, all these things are just simply God's grace to us right now as shadows of His great glory that is to come that will fill this earth with light? Maybe. Whatever this looks like, whether it's symbolic or literal, I don't think it matters. I think what we're going to come to is God's glory will be everywhere, filling everything. And everything we look at, everything we do, every thought that we have will be one that brings Him glory so that's kind of what i think we see in creation we could probably bring many for many other things forward but i want to point out specifically a few things that we see regarding humanity in this new creation we see that all of humanity will praise god and share in his glory if you look at verse three we come once again to the throne of god and the and the lamb and notice what are we the church doing This is the bride, the bride that he has saved, the bride that he has adorned, the bride that he has made glorious. What are we doing? We are now worshiping God. We are praising God. We are told that we will see his face. This most likely is see Jesus' face. His name will be on our foreheads, meaning we are possessed, meaning owned, and we are protected by God. This is glorification. So, when we, when we come to salvation, we understand that Jesus has saved us so that we would be justified, declared righteous, that we would be sanctified, which is what Revelation is all about, that we are to press on 
and that through trials and tribulations, God is making us more like himself. So that's sanctification. And all these lead to what we call glorification. The time where we will be made fully like God. Now, not that we are God, but we're made like Him. That we will be holy and perfect as He is. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read this. Talking about when Jesus appears. It says, we know that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And here in our verse 3, what does it say? We see the very face of God. Why? Because we are made like Him. So, so get this. When we're glorified, we will offer perfect, unlimited, unhindered worship. Perfect worship at all times. Now, I don't think this means we're going to be on clouds with harps dressed in togas or anything like that. I really hope not. I don't think it does. But just think this through. Everything, we are fully glorified. So just as the Son, everything He does glorifies the Father, everything we will do will glorify God. I mean, every thought, every action, every word we speak will honor God. There will be no evil, no twisted or sinister motives. We will love one another perfectly as Jesus loves us. We will count others more important than ourselves. So to break that down maybe a little bit more, it means we'll always offer the greater portion of cake to someone else, right? It means that that center cinnamon roll, we will never fight for, but we'll always give away. It means we won't try to fight to have our own way. It means we won't worry about being first or having the most. It means we will always hold the door open for others. It means there will be no more backseat driving, it means that we will joyfully and always offer to pay for others' meals. I mean, just think about it. Constantly, all we're thinking about is how do we love one another? How do we honor one another? How do we glorify God? We will be zealous for good works, not for the point of pride, but for the exaltation of God and to love one another. Do you get this? Like, this means that there's no slander, no gossip, no hatred, no envy, no animosity, no lust, no pride. Can you even imagine that? No pride. Every thought you have is perfect for the love of God. Every motive we have will be for the good of others. There will be no racism, no sexual abuse, no immorality of any kind, no Democrat or Republican or anything else. Can you actually picture this reality? Like, can you? Like, like just think... Everything is amazing and perfect. Like the best utopian book that you've ever picked up fails in absolute comparison to the reality that we will be in this new creation. And all of this is because of what Christ has done at the cross. That He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has purified us. He's he's made us holy. And right now we know He's making us holy so that on this day, we together will be fully glorified with him now i i want to address the question many people and you probably have asked this or wondered this or you've had people ask you this will we ever repeat the sin of adam and eve i've had so many people say well 
But what's to stop us from doing the whole Garden of Eden thing again? What if somebody comes in? And and what if someone deceives someone? And then are are we starting everything over? No. Because we are not like the first Adam, but we will be like the second Adam. The greater Adam will be like Jesus. Right? The first Adam failed. And if we're going to be made like him, we'll all repeat this. But that's why the second Adam came. The greater Adam. The last Adam. Jesus, who is perfect, who is holy, and now who makes us holy also. And remember, we already read in verse 3, there will be nothing corrupted in this creation. There's no place for anything to come in here of sinfulness, of evil desires. And think about this. In the Old Testament, we see that things can either be clean or unclean. Clean things can become unclean, and then through, through uh, um, sacrifices, unclean things can be made clean. In fact, much of Leviticus deals with this. Just read Leviticus, and like, it, it's hard, and I get it, it's weird, it's super bloody. But what you'll do is you'll get the whole idea is that constantly Israel was aware, okay, are we clean, are we unclean? And, and if we're clean, we've got to stay clean because we're going to be made unclean at some point. But in this new creation, everything is clean. Never will anything be unclean or unholy again. Everything has been made perfect. In the Old Testament, we see the priests had to be made holy, had to go through these rituals in order to go into the holy of holies. We see that all the instruments that were used in the temple had to be, had to be sanctified and consecrated to God that they would be holy so that they'd be worthy of coming into the temple where God's presence was. But what we see here in the new creation, everything is holy. Every utensil we have, every fork, every shovel, every vehicle, every tree, everything we have will be holy. There will be absolutely nothing unclean, nothing that can create uncleanness in this new creation. Everything that exists will be so for the glory of God. So when we look at this, God's not hitting the reset button. Let's just go back to Eden. See what happens. Everything has moved from lesser to greater. And what we understand, this has always been the plan. In Ephesians chapter 1, let me just read. I wasn't really planning on going here, but, you know, we will anyway. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Like, just think through what we read here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundations of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him so before creation god says i want to have a people and i want them to be blameless i want them to be holy i want them to be made like me okay so how are we going to do that what we're going to do is we're going to create uh, a creation where we'll place man and woman in a garden which is a small microcosm but eventually what they're going to need is to be redeemed by the very blood of christ because you see it says even as he chose us in him We were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. The cross has always been planned. It was planned that one day God would create a people who would be saved by the cross to forever live with Him. This has always been the plan. 
always that we would come before the throne of God and the Lamb and worship Him for all of eternity. Come back to our text. Remember Moses in the Old Testament. Ben talked about this last week. When he goes up the mountain and he sees God, what happens? His face glows, which is weird, and that's why he kind of put the, um, the, the veil over it so people wouldn't see it glowing, and also um, it would fade over time, it's believed. So, so when he, after he came out of the temple, it would be glowing and slowly fade, and then he would go back in like a recharge, you know, like recharge your batteries. But now we live in the presence of God. So I just want you to think, Moses wasn't allowed to see the face of God. If he saw the face of God, he would die. But just being in the presence of God, he literally glowed. We will now dwell in the presence of God, seeing his face for all of eternity. So will we ever go back to sin? Will we ever repeat the Adam and Eve? Never! Because what God has done in Jesus Christ is perfect, that he would save us. Can you picture this reality? A perfect place? One more point. All of humanity will share in the glorious rule of God. So look at verse 5. This is where it gets crazy. We will reign forever and ever. You ever wonder what you're going to do in the new creation? Harps, clouds, togas. Um, It says we will reign. We will be kings. We will rule. Now remember, Adam and Eve were given the right to rule. They were the vice regents on earth. They were to govern all of creation. But when they sinned, they abdicated that, right? It lost that. So then comes the greater Adam, the one who does perfectly follow and obey God so that he would what? Be the king of all creation. That he would be the king of this kingdom. And now we who believe in him are made like him so that we would rule with him forever. Back in Revelation chapter 3, when, when we're in those letters to the church of Laodicea, we read in verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So, so where do we sit? With Jesus on his throne, who sits on the father's throne. Okay, so... In the Old Testament, one person once a year is able to go in the Holy of Holies. Now, not only do we see God's face, not only do we dwell in His presence, we sit on His throne. In the Gospel, God holds nothing back from us. He saves us. He adopts us. He glorifies us. He makes us like like Himself. He gives us everything that the Son has so that we would even share in His very rule. There are no second-class citizens. There are no outsiders here. Isn't that incredible? This is the picture that we have. If you have not trusted in Jesus... I encourage you to trust in Him today. For not only does He save you, not only does He bring about forgiveness of sins, He adopts you into God's family that you would be eternally with Him in the new heavens and new earth. Never to be separated. Never to experience His wrath. Amen Amen indeed. So if we were to summarize, just kind of bring this down to maybe two things. The new creation is all about God being fully glorified in all of creation. All of creation just shouts with His glory. 
His presence, His rule everywhere. Everything holy. But something else, the new creation is where we are at maximum joy. We see God's face. We are like God. Not God, but we're like Him. We share in His very glory. We sit on His throne. So what we have is, in God's, when God is fully glorified, that is where we experience our maximum joy. That's what we have here. Is God is made glorious. His joy is now our joy. And we share in that for all of eternity. There's no sin. Every thought we have is pure. Every thought we have is right. Every thought we have is for the love of one another and for the glory of God. And so, I think what we have to do, just one last question, is how does this function to encourage the seven churches that this letter was written to? How does it encourage them? How does this picture help them when they're in trials and they're in tribulations and under the threat of death? How does it encourage us today? Think about it. The seven churches, they're all facing temptation. They're all facing compromise of their faith. Each church is being tempted to trust more in their own wisdom than in God. Each church is being tempted to become more like the world. Each church is being tempted to, to become like the world for the sake of convenience or for the sake of comfort. And I think we're facing the very same temptations where they might look a little different. Take a moment. Think. What temptations do you face today? Marriage, divorce, lust, finances, parenting, pain, disease, old age, honesty at work, honesty with our finances. How do you use your words? Popularity, sexual purity, anger, resentment. I mean, there's, we can go through a whole gamut of emotions that we experience and we're tempted with on a regular basis so how is it that we will stand firm in our faith how is it that they were to stand firm in their faith how is it that we will not compromise but that we will persevere well it's said that everything we do we do out of joy Every action that we take is one for the pursuit of joy and I think um, it was Plato, but it might have been C.S. Lewis. Some guy said, even the person who commits suicide does so for, the, for, the, for joy, for the escaping of the pain of this world. Every, every action we do is for the pursuit of joy. And so sin will always promise joy. But what we see in Revelation is that that joy the sin offers is short-lived and ends in God's wrath. That, that's, that's the end game. If we say, okay, I want to reject God... I'm just going to do the things that I want. Do what is right in my own eyes. We see very clearly in chapters 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 what the result of that. Revelation is very clear. But here in our text, what we're seeing is God is showing the great joy that lies before us who trust in Him. Our present age is full of tribulation. And as Ben pointed out last week, the tribulations of this age are meant to purify us, are meant to sanctify us, prepare us for glorification, prepare us for the day that we'll be with God. But what we see is that this age is coming to an end. The fight that we're in, the temptations that we're in, are all coming to an end. And there is a greater joy that lies ahead. 
And remember in Revelation 2 and 3, John writes to all the churches and says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes. Says that seven times. The one who overcomes, they have all of this joy in God. Now we don't overcome because of how strong we are. We don't overcome because of how much money we have or the cars we drive. We overcome because of God's grace in Jesus. That's how we overcome. That's how we press forward. And what we're told is that we can press forward. God's grace is with us. That that we can persevere. That we can overcome for this joy that lies before us. And this joy is not apart from God. Christianity is not about an end game where, where we have our own world, where we're our own gods, or we're absorbed into some energy. But what, what Christianity shows us is our greatest joy is found in the presence of God. Not apart from Him, but with Him. Any other religion that promises an eternity apart from God has made a God like themselves, Because then the goal is, well, if that God was like us and he, and he became a God, then, then we can do the same thing also. And we can have this. But we have a God who is unmade, who is eternal, who is perfect, who is holy. And that our greatest joy is found in His presence. So I think this text is meant to function with chapter 21 and chapter 22 as this awe and wonder that it fills us and says, you can press on. This is the joy. You will be with me forever. His Spirit is in us now, guaranteeing our salvation and our glorification and saying, press on. This is where we are going. It is in the new heavens and new earth where we will forever be with God. That's how I think this text functions. It would strengthen you and I in whatever trial you're in, that this joy would far outweigh whatever sinful joy we are facing. Whatever joy, that whatever sin we're in temptation of right now, as we look at this joy, it would crush that joy. And this would be all that we would see, the very glory of God. Say, that's, that's what I want. I'm not going to go off track here. I'm not going to detour into this sin because I want that joy. I don't want these lesser joys that will fall away and will not actually satisfy. But I'm going to press on because of what God has done for me and what He promises is in my future. And so, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said, we are to focus on heaven 20 minutes every day. You know what I think the point is there? We are to remind ourselves of the joy that lies ahead of us. And as that joy constantly is ahead of us, it will crush the futile joys that sin promises us each day. And it will help us to press on. And I would argue that this is what we need to do for one another. When we're in table groups, This is what we remind each other of. Not necessarily the new heavens and new earth, but the joy that's with us. The joy of having God with us now. The joy that one day we will be with Him for all of eternity. And I want to encourage us, when we come on a Sunday morning, arrive early, stay late. Why? Because we get to experience some of this fellowship now. In fact, this, God's people in God's place, under God's rule. This is what this is a picture of right here. So when you come late and you leave early, you're missing a little bit of this joy that we actually get to have now. So I encourage you, come. Help 
uh, foster this love that we have. That's not given to us because, or it's not something that we make, but it's the grace that God has given us that we would truly encourage each other, that we would help one another, that we'd pray for one another, that we would lock arms with one another, encouraging each other to press on for this joy. So I'm going to pray and ask the men to come forward as we partake of communion. Our Father, we come to you. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus, that you have saved us, justified us, you are sanctifying us, and that one day we know together we will be glorified, brought into your new heavens and new earth, the new creation where we will spend eternity with you. God, I pray that every day we would, we would think of that joy before us, of being with you, seeing your face, offering unhindered, unlimited worship, being at perfect joy as you are perfectly glorified. God, I thank you for this text today. May we be in awe and wonder of what you have done for us in your son Jesus. Amen.